This is the GGC Life Podcast. So I'm carrying a word on my heart that I believe is for the church, capital C Universal Church, and I've had the privilege of sharing it with two local churches in Australia that partner with the NCMI team, and, um, and, and, and you'll be the third on this trip. And, and I, I'm, I'm just excited by it because it, it's a word that's going to call us up as his people. It's a word that's going to confront us, but ultimately it's a word that's going to strengthen us for what God has ahead of us. And so maybe before I get into some scripture, if you're taking notes, the title of this message is A Caution to the Christian. A Caution to the Christian. And uh, my hope, and like I said, my heart is that as we open God's word, the the scriptures God breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit to correct, to train, to rebuke. It's profitable for these things. Why? So that the children of God, God's people, would be complete and equipped for every good work. And so my hope in my heart is as we unpack God's word, that we would be confronted, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, and that ultimately we would be strengthened what he has for us as his children. Is that cool? Are you with me? Well, Father, as we, as your people are before you now, I ask Holy Spirit that you would anoint me for this task, but Lord, that we would each have hearts that are soft, good soil, ready to receive the seed of your word this morning. In Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. 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 So I just want to give a little bit of context for... uh, For what I have on my heart this morning, I want to share and submit and highlight three cautions that I have found from the book of Judges for God's people today. But before we get to the book of Judges, I think it's important that we have a little bit of context on how we see the Israelite nation in the wilderness and then entering into the promised land. And so I want to begin with a man called Abraham. Now, God desired a family. God wanted a family. And so he called Abraham to himself, and he said to him that I will make you a great nation. And he said that I'll take you from the land that you are, and with your family, I want to give you a land for your possession. Why? So that you would be blessed and be a blessing to the nations. And so God called Abraham to the land of Canaan, which we also refer to the promised land. And so God does that, and he said, and I want us to catch this, that I will make you a great nation, and that you will be a blessing to the nations. And so Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had a son called Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite son was Joseph. Because Joseph was the favorite, his brothers hated him. And so they were close to wanting to kill him, but instead they decided to sell Joseph into slavery and he ended up in Egypt. He started off as a slave, but the favor of God was upon him. And so Joseph went from being a slave to being the governor of Egypt, second in charge under Pharaoh. The favor of God was upon Joseph. And so Joseph went from being that and in prison and and go read the story in Genesis to being the governor. There was then a widespread famine all throughout the land and Joseph's brothers had to go to Egypt to receive resource and to receive food and to receive their kind of their rations because Egypt had stored up for the famine. 
And we see there was a beautiful restoration between Joseph and his brothers. And so Joseph then invites all his brothers with their father Jacob, whose name became Israel, where we see the tribes of Israel. And so the whole nation of Israel, the the children of Jacob slash Israel, came and lived in Egypt. And we see in the scriptures that not only was God's favor and blessing on them, but they absolutely thrived. They thrived in Egypt. And over time, sorry, I'm rushing the context, but over time, when the people of Israel were thriving, Joseph died and his leadership was forgotten. And so the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, who didn't know of Joseph, became threatened and were fearful about how powerful the Israelite people were. And so the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. We then see Moses. Moses is born to be the deliverer and the rescuer of the Israelites. And we see throughout that story of the Exodus, the plagues and different things, Pharaoh releases the Israelite people, God's people, from slavery in Egypt. And we see them go through the wilderness. Well, first they they, they go through the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God speaks to his people. Moses made some silly decisions, and so God said that, Moses, you will not lead my people into the promised land. And so eventually, long story short, Moses dies, and and the leadership of Israel is handed over to his assistant, Joshua. Joshua is the man who led the nation of Israel from the wilderness, across the Jordan River, through Jericho, and into the promised land. And so that's a little bit of the context from how we went from God calling Abraham to now the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, in the promised land. So hopefully that was helpful. And so with that context, just a couple things before we look at at a scripture. The first thing is this. While they were in the wilderness, the people of Israel, God had a specific and intentional plan for them. And in Exodus 19, he tells them that God wanted his family, his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was God's specific and intentional plan for his people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Another thing that God spoke to them while they were in the wilderness is what he wanted them to do once they got into the promised land. This is what God wanted his people to do when they arrived and entered into the promised land. And we see, and the the scripture will come up behind me, but Numbers chapter 33, and we'll pick up from verse 51. Just a couple verses. And this is what God's speaking to Moses to say, speak this to my people. And it says this, Numbers chapter 33 from verse 51. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Why did God instruct the tribes of Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land? Because God wanted his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that Hebrew word for holy is kwadesh. It means to be set apart. It means to be sacred. It means to be different from others. God's intention 
was drive out the people of Canaan, drive out the inhabitants of the land. Why? Because I've called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you might think, oh, like God's such, a, he's such an angry God. Why is he wanting to drive out and, 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 and attack the, the Canaanites? Well, the whole point, the whole point of driving them out was because God needed his people to avoid the moral corruption and idolatry of the Canaanites. God wanted them to avoid the moral corruption and Canaanite idolatry. And we see in the book of Judges, and we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture, we see just how the Israelites went about with what God had told them to do. So the Israelites have entered into the promised land. They've inherited the different territories that God had allotted to them. But there's still Canaanites living in the land, and there's still lots of land to be taken. And the first point this morning that I want to share with us, the first caution for you and I as God's people today is cultural compromise. Cultural compromise. And we see throughout the second part of Judges chapter 1, if you look at Judges chapter 1, I encourage you, open up to there, and there'll be different passages that we look at, but I hope that you get to see the whole picture of God's word, but in the second part of Judges chapter one, there is this consistent tale of partial victories. There's a consistent tale of partial victories. The tribes of Israel have won their territories. They've 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 driven out the Canaanites, but they failed to completely drive out the Canaanites, and instead they allow the people of Canaan to settle alongside them. He has a couple examples. Judges chapter 1, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Another example, verse 29 of chapter 1. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Geza. So the Canaanites lived in Geza among them. Israel partially obeyed God. But incomplete obedience is still disobedience. And so God confronted his people. Remember he said, I want you to drive out the inhabitants of this land, tear down all their statues, tear down their wooden carvings. And so God confronts them on their disobedience. God wanted a nation to be set apart, sacred, different, a kingdom of priests. Why? Because he wanted them to be a blessing to the nations around. He wanted his people to be different so that they could show the nations around them who he is and what he's like. That was the call he had for his people. But we see throughout the passages in Judges that Israel failed miserably at this. And so if you are in the book of Judges and the passage will be behind me, Judges chapter 2, we're going to pick up from verse 11. And this is what it says, Judges chapter 2 from verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Israel failed to completely drive out the Canaanites, and instead they allowed them to settle alongside. 
But it didn't stop at settling alongside them. Israel then became accustomed and familiar to the ways of their Canaanite neighbors. So not only were they now alongside the Canaanites, not only were they accustomed and familiar to the sinful ways of the Canaanites, but it then went a step further. The people of Israel were then attracted and enticed by the sinful ways and the pagan practices of their Canaanite neighbors. Not only were they alongside, not only were they accustomed, not only were they attracted, but their attraction then became an adoption. They then adopted the sinful ways of their Canaanite neighbors. And ultimately, the Israelites abandoned God completely. Do we see that progression of cultural compromise? It began at living alongside. Then they became accustomed. Then they became attracted. Then they adopted. And eventually that led them to completely abandoning God. And the sad thing is, God who had called them to be a kingdom of priests, that his treasured possession, sacred, set apart, different to the nations around. Why? Because he wanted his people. Their mission was to show the nations around them who he was and what he's like so that they would be a blessing and a light to the nations. But instead, because of cultural compromise, God's people, let me put it like this. You could not tell the difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites because of cultural compromise. And so instead of being a blessing to them, instead of showing them who God was and what he was like, you literally could not tell them apart. And so the first caution this morning is that of cultural compromise. And, and you and I as God's people today, we don't live in a world or it's, it's not the same degree to, to what the Israelites face with wooden carvings and statues around that we may bow down and worship to. But I want to suggest, and not just suggest, I want to say this morning that as God's people, as you and I, in 2023, we may not be surrounded by wooden statues and carvings that we physically bow down to, at least in this part of the world. But we are, as God's people, the church, surrounded by modern-day cultural idols that influence us. There are modern day cultural idols that have influence over the church, including you and I. Tim Keller, who just passed away and and is in glory with the Lord. This is what he said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, in answering what an idol is. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And I'll say it again. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The Apostle John in 1 John 5, 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So why is God's word instructing us 
to flee from idolatry and to keep ourselves from idols. Because just like the nation of Israel, as God's people, the church today, we are on a mission. And I want to say this morning that idolatry will cause the mission to malfunction. Idolatry will cause the mission to malfunction. And like I said, just like the nation of Israel was called with a specific plan and intention from God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as God's people, the church today, we have been given that same mission, that same mandate. We see in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, that we are holy priests in God's kingdom, that we show the goodness of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As God's people today, we are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Matthew 5. As the church today, we are called to go into the world and preach the gospel and demonstrate the kingdom through signs, wonders, and miracles, Mark 16. As the church today, we're called to make disciples of all nations and then teach those disciples to obey Christ. As the church today, we are on a mission to represent Jesus and to be ambassadors for Christ because God, the script 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God is making his appeal through you and I. We're a people on mission. And the issue with idolatry, the issue with cultural compromise is that the mission will malfunction. We must flee from idolatry. We must keep ourselves from idols, church. And just like the Israelites, it is so easy for you and I, because we live in this world, which can I remind us, as the church, we are called to be in this world to seek and to save the lost, in this world to establish and advance the kingdom of God. But we're not called to be of this world. And it's so easy for you and I, as we live alongside people in this world, to become accustomed, to become attracted, to become, and to adopt. And ultimately, we see no doubt you have friends, no doubt you have family, and you have seen this progression of cultural compromise where it eventually leads them to abandon God completely. No doubt, as we sit here, we can think of people, and it breaks our hearts, and it breaks God's heart even more. And can I just remind us, it's not that God abandoned them, it's that they've abandoned God. Church, will we take the caution of, of cultural compromise seriously? Research was conducted in September 2021. There was a survey in the U.S., and, and, and there was a 1,000 pastors who participated in the survey, and they had one question to answer. And the question was, what are the modern-day cultural idols that are influencing the church? That was their question. And 1,000 pastors in the U.S., September 21, not too far away, this was their response. They had eight things, and I'll just, you can see it behind me, but comfort, control, money, approval, success, social influence, political power, and sex. The top eight, according to these 1,000 pastors, of the cultural modern-day idols affecting the church. And I've put there with number nine, family. If I was to be a part of the survey, I would have written and submitted family. And can I say, some of these things are not necessarily bad things. 
if submitted to God and His will and His ways and His patterns that we see in His Word, they are good, godly things. But when they begin to absorb our hearts and our imagination more than God, or when we begin to go to them and seek them to give us things that only God can give, that's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes dangerous. And I would say that, and why I would say family, because I think some would be like, what the heck, family is God's idea. So was sex and the covenant of marriage. But I meet too many people where family becomes an idol. Or can I say, lack thereof. Not having a spouse, not having children. It can become an idol because it absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. We look to family, we look to a spouse, we look to kids. And I understand it's so easy for me to say because God has blessed me with both. But the truth remains the same. If we're looking to these things, and if they're absorbing our heart and imagination more than God, or we look for them to give us what only God can give, it has become an idol. And church, we must fight against it. And I say that with absolute humility and love. And while I'm, while I'm here, before we get to number two, can I be bold enough to say this? If none of these things, if, if you're unable to identify any of these things as current, cultural, modern-day idols, then I would suggest that maybe the culture around us has already infiltrated. Maybe we've become accustomed too much. So let me ask each of us as individual members of this family of God, what idolatry have you become accustomed, attracted to, or even adopted whether it's one of these nine or, or, or something else, just reflect on that. What has begun to compromise within your life? And the good news is, before I get to number two, is that as children of God, we can recognize it, we can confess it, we can repent of it, we can deal with it between ourselves and God, and we can walk free into the preferred future that God has. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so maybe today we need to do business with God. The second caution this morning, if you're taking notes, is generational abdication. And I'll explain what that is or what I mean by that. So to abdicate is to fail to fulfill your duty or task. If you're abdicating something, you're failing to fulfill or or accomplish the duty or task that you've been given. And I want to say this morning that God has given His people a generational responsibility and mandate to tell the next generation who He is and what He's like. That is our mandate. A mandate is is, is an official kind of commission or commandment to do something. It's an official order or commission to do something. And I truly believe God has given His people a generational mandate, an official order and commissioning to tell the next generation about Him. Why? So that they would set their hope in Him. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. From verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 from verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob or Israel to give you. Verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in Judges, we see how the Israelites went with this generational mandate. Judges chapter 2, from verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals were the the gods and goddesses of fertility. The The next generation of Israelites did not know God and did not know all that God had done for the people. And as a result, because of that, it was very easy for that generation to become accustomed, attracted, adopting, and ultimately abandoning God. Because they had not been brought, that the next generation was not discipled. And so the Israelites failed to disciple the next generation The Israelites failed to disciple the next generation. And by default, the Canaanites did. The Israelites failed to disciple the next generation, and so they abandoned God. But by default, the Canaanites did. And if we don't, and I say we as the church, if we don't disciple our young people, the culture around us will. If we don't disciple our young people, the culture around us will. This is what Psalm 78, again, God's word. Let this challenge and confront and strengthen. We will not, Psalm 78 from verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And church, my encouragement, the caution of this generational abdication is that for you and I, and for Glorious Gospel Church, that we would not abdicate our responsibility to disciple the next generation so that they would know God, that they would love God, that they would set their hope in God. Because if we don't disciple our young people, the culture around us will. Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking to dads, he says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so dads, we have a job to do. 
We are called by God to lead our families and to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of our Lord. And can I say, parents, this is our primary responsibility. The discipleship of our children is our primary responsibility. It's a God-given duty. And yes, there's an incredible children's program. And yes, Move and Youth's amazing. And yes, the church has a part to play in discipling and supporting you in discipling your children. But please do not abdicate that responsibility just because you can check them in to an incredible ministry. Just because you can drop them off on a Friday night to an incredible ministry. The church is here to be a supplement, as in the church leadership are here to be a supplement in the discipleship of your children. They provide a bit of veg and a bit of protein, but it's your duty to provide a well-balanced diet for your kids. Have you abdicated your generational mandate? And can I also speak to everyone in the room who is yet to be married or, or maybe you don't have children? The same mandate applies. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes five voices for a young person to believe something. And so they've got parents, grandparents, maybe teachers, friends, youth leader. Church, we all have a role to play in this generational mandate. We all have a role to support. It takes a village to raise a child. John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And so what modern day cultural idols have we tolerated that the next generation will embrace? What are you tolerating today? Not necessarily embracing, but what are you tolerating today that your children or your nieces and nephews or those who you lead in children's ministry, what will they embrace because we're tolerating? What are you tolerating this morning? We're in a battle with the culture. And if we surrender, future generations will suffer. And just lastly, and then I'll get to the final point, lastly, let me just speak into, and, and I'm, maybe for those online, I mean, you here, but maybe you've got friends that have, haven't really gotten back into the gathering of the saints since COVID. I'm not sure what the context may be, but, but can I just address not our Sunday attendance, but our corporate worship, our gathered worship participation. We're not just here to attend, we are to participate. But what you find optional If this, the gathering of the saints is optional, what you find optional, your children will find unnecessary. What you find optional, if prayer meeting is optional, your children will find it unnecessary. If gathering with the saints and corporate worship is optional, your children will find it unnecessary. So be encouraged. Let us not abdicate this responsibility. Let us take this generational mandate seriously, church. Because the future generations are at stake. Caution number three. Gospel amnesia. Amnesia refers to the loss of memories, including facts, information, and experiences. Amnesia is the loss of memory. You forget facts, you forget experiences, different information. And obviously I'm speaking about spiritual amnesia. And for those with memory loss physically, 
absolutely devastating. And I, for some, that'll be a tender thing. But spiritually speaking, Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Israel failed to remember that it was God who took them out of bondage and slavery. And that's why we saw in Judges 2 that the next generation arose and, and did not know God or for, and forgot his works and thus abandoned him. Israel forgot that it was God who defeated the pagan gods and manifested his power in the different plagues. The Israelites forgot that it was God who redeemed them through the blood of the Lamb at Passover. The Israelites forgot that it was God who parted the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites through the Red Sea and then used the same Red Sea to destroy the charging Egyptian chariots. The Israelites forgot that it was God who led their people by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. The Israelites forgot that it was God who enabled the rushing, the raging Jordan River in flood season to stop at a town called Adam so that the nation of Israel, two million or so people, could cross this flooded Jordan River on dry ground. The Israelites forgot that it was God who enabled the walls of Jericho to fall down so that they could enter the promised land. The Israelites forgot their God. It wasn't the Baals and the false idols that brought them out of slavery and into the promised land. It was God. But they failed to live in the light of God's salvation and grace. Their forgetfulness led to their idolatry. And as God's people today, you and I can live with gospel amnesia. We can live with gospel amnesia. And we can forget all about Christ's sacrifice. We can forget what the blood of Jesus purchased for us. We can forget that our lives don't belong to us anymore because we were purchased with a price. Yeah. We forget our identity in the Father as sons and as daughters. We're a forgetful people. Have you succumbed to gospel amnesia? Are you failing to live in the light of God's salvation and grace? Because the greatest challenge to Christian faithfulness is forgetfulness. The greatest challenge to our Christian faithfulness, to our uh, participation in the mission of God, to our advancing the kingdom of God, for, to our serving our King Jesus, our follower worship of Him, the greatest challenge to our faithfulness to those things is our forgetfulness of who He is and what He has done for you and I. Have we been living with gospel amnesia? And so just right at the end, how can you and I protect ourselves from gospel amnesia? How can we protect ourselves from failing to live in the light of God's salvation and grace? We need to regularly gather together as saints. Because it's in our gathering, it's in our worship, together as the body of Christ, worshiping our God, that He forms us, that He shapes us, He fashions us. 
He makes us more like Him. We cannot forsake the gathering of the saints. And I know we all gather together, and that's a good thing, but maybe for those online or if we've got friends or family who have been forsaking the gathering, encourage them to come back because it's in our gathering and our worship that God forms and shapes and realigns our compromise and remind us of the generational mandate. And we remember as we sing these songs and as we hear the word preached and as we partake in communion and as we fellowship, we remember who Jesus is and what He has done. This is why we need to be in connect groups. Because who's keeping us accountable when we drift? This is why we need to have our personal times of worship and prayer and being in God's Word. Because it's the God-breathed, inspired Word of God that corrects and trains and teaches and rebukes that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. This is why we need to regularly partake in communion with the body of Christ. We do this in remembrance. But not only does communion and the Lord's Supper help remind us of what Jesus has done, but I believe it's also renewing the covenant we have with Him. Not only is it reminding, but it's renewing. So can I invite us to our feet, please, for those that are able. How are you doing personally? And I don't, I'm, I, we're in a culture of individualism, but as an individual member of this corporate family, how are you doing personally in these three cautions? How are you doing with cultural compromise? How are you doing with this generational mandate from God? How are you doing with gospel amnesia? Because this morning is a great opportunity for you and for me to do business with God. God is calling this church into greater reverence into a greater holiness, not, not us trying to be holy. We're made holy. But grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And we need to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And so what business do we need to do with our great God this morning? And so Father, as we as your people stand before you, we're so grateful that because of Jesus, our great high priest, we have access to you, Father, that we can approach your throne room of grace with confidence. So Lord, I thank you this morning that we have been able to draw near to you. And Lord, that your word says that we, as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so we recognize, Holy Spirit, that you are here with us. And I ask in Jesus' name right now that you would begin to highlight things in our heart, things in our mind, things in our lives that we need to deal with and address. Even now, Father, as we stand before you, Holy Spirit, as you move amongst us, begin to highlight 
begin to confront, begin to convict our hearts that we would be strengthened. Thanks for listening to the GGC Life podcast. We hope you feel encouraged. Be blessed.